Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Andrew Zukowski. He's the co-founder at Join Inc. So Andrew, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Happy to be here, Tats. Yeah. So looking at your background, how did you go from working on medical sort of devices or 3D printed stuff to the venture you are now, you know, in construction, pre-construction? Yeah, great question. The um so my my training's in software engineering and 3D geometry stuff. And that that's how I found my way into the world of 3D printed medical devices. And we were working on technology to customize those devices. So how do you make like a, you know, a brace that uh, fits, you know, exactly one person's exterior geometry, right? First you got to scan them and then you have to design it and then you got to print it. And the scanning and the printing, like the technology had emerged, there was cheap 3D scanning and there was cheaper, like better 3D printing all of a sudden. But the way that most things get designed that are going to be manufactured or even that are going to be printed at the time was very like, is very intensively manual. Like someone had to sit in front of a modeling program and do tens of hours of work in order to create something. But that just doesn't doesn't scale if you're trying to turn these out. I mean, they're like we were making um, hand and wrist braces, and they're get the exact number. I want to say they're like 20 million like custom hand and wrist braces made in the United States each year or something like that for people with RSI and other issues. And like it doesn't make sense to have a hundred million like hours a year go into uh like modeling each of these one at a time. And so we we were working on the automation of that. And it was sort of, you know, there were interesting problems, there were fun problems. And one day I found a company that was taking sort of a similar approach to a very different design domain where they were attempting to build software tools and programming tools to allow for sort of more automation and more reuse of knowledge in the construction space. So this was a Google X spin out at the time called Flux that was putting together a computational design platform for architects and engineers under the hypothesis that we'd be able to switch from a like, you know, architects start a blank sheet of paper and draw everything every time to one where a lot more of that knowledge is um, reused and shared and people are able to start sort of further along in projects and are able to, you know, spend more of their brain and more of their time on like interesting value add problems and less on detailing, you know, escape stairwells and detailing ADA compliant bathrooms for the nth time, like on a particular project. And yeah, so that was a, that was a great team, like a really interesting space, really interesting problem. And that was really my big sort of first exposure to construction. Sure. What you were working on at that time with uh, Google, did it work ultimately? Good question. I mean, the company has been, you know, pivoted and has been acquired and none of the code that I, you know, worked on, none of those products are still running. So to some extent, uh, no, it didn't. And it was, uh, it was a really interesting lesson or set of lessons even where we had this belief that like the computer could tell you what to do, that you could sort of build a computer system that would be smart enough to like design a building and then solve all the problems around it. And I think computers aren't there yet. We had that hypothesis. We also, the way we went to market probably was not the right way to go to market, but... What was the way that, uh, what was the path taken? 
we sold through architecture and engineering firms. And the goal was to release products that would capture data into our platform, data that was being generated as part of the, you know, as the design and the engineering process, and then make it easier to pull in new sources of data, like site contextual data or data from the structural engineering tool or data that was generated like inside of some programmatic computational tool that lived inside of the platform. Um, and so to capture the process, capture the data and slowly enrich it was sort of more and more, more and more smarts over time. And, you know, I don't think a hundred years from now, or maybe even 10 years from now, like architects will be starting from a blank sheet of paper every time they need to detail an ADA compliant bathroom. But that approach, it was a very sort of technology first and software first and complicated product approach to the market. And so it was hard to hard to get traction, hard to really demonstrate a lot of value in the way that like construction and design and construction, especially in the United States are configured. You know, there was value to very specific users, but it wasn't, we weren't sort of replacing anything really substantial in the value chain. It was hard to command a really substantial price point. You know, at the end of the day, every business has to be sustainable. And absolutely. So what I mean, what's the right word? Possessed you to start your own thing? Oh, yeah, good question. I mean, we like had seen seen some of these problems. Like, if you've got like, I joined this company, right? And the founding team at Flux was like incredibly visionary, just like more so than any other team that I think I've met. And they had the Google name attached to them. And what that meant was when they knocked on the door, everybody answered and said, "Come on in. Let us tell you your problems. Maybe you can come solve them with Google Magic." And it meant that sort of coming out of there, we had just seen a seen a number of problems. And so we we had we'd identified a few that like weren't the ones that like Flux was going to go try to solve, but that we think are the matter in a way that you know the construction industry. I mean, we can rattle off all the stats about the like number of buildings we need to build just based on the trend of urbanization. And we can talk about like environmental impacts from both building construction and operation. And we can talk about like, what is it like 13% of global GDP is a construction industry. And like in the US, it's this just like incredible engine of engine of the economy and engine of the middle class. I mean, it's a, like, it's one of these industries, it's not going anywhere where without, you know, you don't need a fancy college degree to get a really good job like in the trades that like very quickly leads to, if you want, like running and owning your own business and like sort of amazing lives for people and for families that are critical in supporting their communities around them. Like all these, like talking about schools and houses and like hospitals, right? Like this is like really critical stuff for like every community around us. And yeah, so we we think that the built environment is you know, a sector that's sort of worth, worth working in. It's just worth, you know, it's a good, good life. We can be, we can be happy. We can, you know, look our spouses in the eyes and say that we're doing something that we think is moving the world forward if we're working in construction. Yeah. And, and so, so the, uh, the company that you have now join, yeah, I, I think you, you recruited a few people out of Flux, right? How did you, how do you start that? Yeah, that's a good question. The founding team I met through Flux, so Drew Wolpert, who's currently our, she's got a background in software engineering and she's currently the head of design at Join. Um, she and I both worked at Flux and we teamed up sort of shortly after each of us left Flux. And then we're quickly joined by Jim Forrester, who had done some advising for Flux. He was a co-founder at New Forma previously and fourth co-founder Yi Wang, who we tried to hire at, at Flux from Autodesk and she'd gone to 
a different place, but she came to join us on some time here. Yeah. So we just, it was just people that we had met, met through it. Um, totally, totally different space, totally different customer base, totally different technologies, like super different, but <laughs> now you meet, meet people who are interested in the industry. Yeah. Did it come together quickly or, you know, were there a lot of false starts when you got going? Yeah. I like to say that we, like, there was this period of time, it was close to a year where we were sort of wandering around in a forest with a lot of snow on the ground and the sun was going down. The sun's going down. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, you're, you, we weren't, we had, we raised a little bit of money. Like we had, we weren't like about to be out on the street or anything, but like we were on a pretty short fuse to find something. And we had initially thought the way to tackle, so like the problem we're here to tackle is that we think we should be able to make better, more informed decisions about what projects are going to be. Like we think that choices of materials, choices of programming, choices of design, choices of procurement, like all of those, it's clear that there's this, all of those decisions need to be made on every project. Every commercial construction project is effectively unique, driven by the site's location physically and the environment that brings, the site's location in terms of the regulation it brings, the market at the time the project is going to be constructed, and the owner's goals and program. That all comes together to where every building's unique and you gotta you have to make. We didn't know how many at the time. Now we have data that tells us, but like one to 2,000 decisions that impact the budget or the business case on every project. And they're complicated. Some of them are simple, but a lot of them are complicated. They touch multiple systems. They've got like, you know, first cost and operating cost impacts that you have to balance. They like, you know, you need the architect, the engineer, three trades, the owner, and two different ownership groups all to like look at it and say, like, yep, we're in. Like it's complicated to do this stuff. And, you know, and you don't understand what things are going to cost. And it takes, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time early on looking at facades, uh, facades and sort of glass and aluminum systems. And like if you got like a sort of rough design for like, you know, a piece of a facade and you want to say, like, hey, what pre-engineered systems could work for this. I've got everything figured out. I want this spacing, these finishes, and I'm not too picky about like the exact details. Like it's pr- like I got it all. I I know what I want. What pre-engineered systems could work? Just like answering that question takes a month right now. Like because the way that it gets answered is that like these super smart like technical salespeople from like the facade companies have to like bring these PDF printed product manuals through and like comb through and be like, okay, you want this and here. And like, oh, you've got like a 45 degree angle here. So like, let's go to this page and like, yep, we can support the wind load that you need here. And like, it just takes forever to assemble the information to make these decisions. And we looked at this and we say like, okay, like we think technology can help with this. Um, and that's the thread we're still on. We started trying to solve it in a very different way. We tried to go in sort of through the design teams and, uh, that was that was sort of the wrong wrong way in to this particular set of problems. But like, fortunately, before the sun went all the way down and we froze to death in that like dark cold forest, we've been talking to a lot of people in the industry and like shipping prototypes and early products, and we sort of connected the dots on questions about how cost impacts these decisions. What we realized was that like, yeah, different projects have different goals. Every project is unique. Like. Some projects are trying to hit passive house standards. And so they care a lot about like how airtight the building is. And so they end up doing really weird things with products and systems in order to make it really airtight. And like, there's no way a computer can really help with that. But what we, you know, every project's unique, but every project gets built one day for a particular budget. 
And so what we realized was that like cost is this through line that touches everything. It's not the only factor in all these decisions. If cost was the only factor in all of these decisions, like our cities would be a lot less interesting, but it's one that every decision and every project share. And what we realized was that construction teams are really critical in providing that cost perspective, that that's, that's what they hold and that we started talking to them and what we found is they're engaging earlier and earlier in projects. And this is driven by the shift to design build and CM at risk and CMGC delivery models. And they're, they're there and cost has gone from something that's entirely dictated by the design where cost is the result of 100% CDs and a spec book like uh, document set, like going out and bids coming back. It's gone from that to something that's proactively folded into an ongoing design and decision-making process. And it's new, this process that all these firms are engaging with. It's something that's gotten, you know, they've been doing it for a while, but it's gotten more and more intensive and more and more important for their projects and for their business over the last 10 and 20 years. And yeah, we uncovered that opportunity and that turned out to be like a pretty exciting opportunity. And so we found it and we shipped an early version of a prototype to a few early customers and they liked it said good things and we understood sort of where it could go and uh, we were able to raise a little more money and we thought it would take another like few months to get like a version of the product that was ready to really market to the entire country like together and it actually took more like two years but we got there and sort of been you know really accelerating the market in the last come 12 and 18 months so yeah it took a took a while to like find the right opportunity and then it took a while to really get together sort of the right solution like for that opportunity, but yeah, yeah, for sure. In terms of your go-to market, I mean, are you going to the owners? Like, are you going to the builders? Like, who who are you who are you going to to like that sort of the first step of that adoption that you're trying to get more of? Yeah, that's a great question. So, what what we found was that you know this this decision making process that spans from like earliest conceptual design, honestly, through the end of the project, but it's like really centered in like design development and pre-construction. What we found is that it's inherently like many sided. There's so many stakeholders involved to make these decisions. Well, you've got what we've brought to market is a collaborative platform to assist in this. And like, it's like some of these projects, it's like, there's like a hundred companies like involved. You're like, oh, who knew you had two different acoustic consulting firms like on this one project? Like, okay, like there's just like all these people you have to bring together for it. But what we what we found is that those decisions impact everyone's business. Like everybody cares about what the results are. Like, I mean, the architect can't approve something that isn't going to meet code or like that they can't stamp, right? And like it's they need decisions that stick. So they don't have to redo design production work. And, you know, they, these decisions are really important for like risk on the project and like profitability on the project for the entire construction team and like everyone in the supply chain. Right. I mean, like you, you spend a lot of time working, working with like um, uh, uh, product manufacturers and, and building material folks, right. Like it's like specs and like value engineering decisions, right. Like these, these decisions matter for a lot of people at the end of the day, they probably matter the most for the owner because the owner is the person who's getting the resulting project out. But what we found is that for not every decision, but for a lot of them and for more and more of them over time, the general contractor is sort of the air traffic controller. And so they're probably because they can bring costs to the table, they've naturally emerged as the people who 
now run join, but used to run, and many or most most people are still using Excel. We're still very early. But like run the spreadsheet that all of this gets coordinated in. And we looked at that and we decided to go, we decided to go to market through general contractors. We considered going through owners. What we decided was that general contractors would give us sort of more breadth early in the company's life cycle. So like there aren't that many owners who are doing more than a billion dollars worth of construction like a year. There aren't that many that are doing more than 500 million a year. There just aren't. It's like a few health systems, a few like huge multinationals and like that's it. And if you win one of those, like, yeah, there's your way to like sort of significant scale, but they also tend to be very narrowly focused in terms of project type that's getting delivered. So like, you know, the big tech, I mean, I'm in the Bay Area, like all the big tech companies here, they might do two different types of projects. They do very high end commercial office space and data centers, right? But that's all they do. And so if you work with them, you might inadvertently end up with a system or a product that can only work in those verticals. Mm. Maybe they don't have the complexity, right? They, they have experience so that they, maybe they don't run in, into the same type of collaboration issues. Yeah, some of them, they, they might, they might not. Maybe they run into more collaboration issues because it's data centers are like so intensely schedule driven or something. We just, you end up, it's like, we believe that like every project has to coordinate design and cost. Every project has to do this. We think that technology in making this process better can move every project forward. And we don't want to accidentally end up with something that only works for like one particular project type. For maybe it's more simple, maybe it's more complicated, maybe it's just like it's hard to say and we didn't we didn't want to like wake up and say like okay, it's time to go do hospitals and like realize that like it didn't like we couldn't do it or we had built the wrong thing. And so we decided to focus on general contractors. General contractors is the go to market first. So yeah, so we've gone to gone to market through general contractors. Yeah. And you've raised money a few times and you you didn't before. Was it difficult for you to do something like that in this sector? We've been pretty fortunate in our fundraising journey. I think a few things feed into that. One is that a lot of the team has sort of the like we got a background we've had exposure to a bunch of like venture back startups we understand sort of how the ecosystem works and then investors sort of know that we understand like how the journey of a venture back startup works i mean jim was previously co-founder in forma like this is the this is the first company i started but it's the third venture back company i've worked at a bunch of our like earliest angel investors are sort of like very experienced silicon valley executives and that is a super fortunate place to be. Our market is, I'll say that it was probably way easier raising money through our journey than it would have been like five years earlier. And, you know, more more credit to the plan grids and building connecteds and Procores of the world who showed that you really could have like pretty good outcomes like in this sector. That really opened people's eyes to it. And then Katera actually you know, Katera crashed and burned, but I think Katera opened a lot of people in the industry's eyes to the idea that there were pools of capital out there and technology expertise out there that might bring something new to their market that might be truly disruptive. And at this, like a lot of companies accelerated their attitudes towards technology. And some of this manifested as like getting better about adopting technology internally, just being more thoughtful about it, doing it faster, making sure the ROI was there. But then also it meant that through corporate VCs and then through 
like sector specific early stage VCs or just sort of more investors out there that have like a really narrow focus on our industry. And so like we, we've raised money from a mixture of generalist investors, Signal Fire is one of them and sector specific investors. And so there were a few of these out there 10 years ago and eight years ago and five years ago, but there's a lot more. There are many more now. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's helped a lot. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. I mean, at the end of the day, fundraising is just like, it's just a, it's a sales process. Like, like it's a no different than selling anything else. It, it like, it's a learnable set of skills and like, there's a ton of materials out there on, oh yeah, people ask about this. So I like keep the, you know, Dick, oh no, it's um, uh, Brad Feld's like venture deals book, like on my desk to show people like it's, you know, there's good materials out there explaining like how the market works, how the ecosystem works in a way that like, you know, in like the early 90s, you literally had to know someone like there wasn't an Internet you could go look it up on and there were no books about it. Like you like it was completely inscrutable to anyone who was outside of it. And it's just I think it's gotten way easier. And I think that's great because it makes it a lot easier for people who didn't already know, you know, investors to like get a little bit of gas to start out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the materials out there, you just have to have the motivation. Yeah. And like the right, the motivation and like the right opportunity, right? I mean, like venture uh, investment in particular is oriented around like really big outcomes and it's like rocket fuel in a way. And you don't, you'd have a great car that's going to take you a really long way and you're going to see exciting things and do exciting things in this car. And you really don't want to put hydrazine in the gas tank. So it's like the right, the right opportunity, but given, given that, then like, yeah. For sure. So when you're not doing all this stuff, uh, do you have any hobbies? I, I, I looked up a photo before and oh, you're doing cross country. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm running a little bit these days. Yeah. Running a little bit these days. I set up a squat rack in my backyard for COVID. So that, and I have a two and a two-year-old, almost a three-year-old. So that, that keeps me busy. Very cool. Is there anything that uh, I didn't ask you that you wanted to cover before we uh, uh, close off here? No, I think this was a yeah fun conversation. Hope hope the hope the story was interesting. Thanks for having me on. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash tats talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.